Good to see you all. That was, what a great start. That was great. I so appreciated hearing from you all. And um, I mean, you guys have jumped up before. Um, hey, look, if you're new to our church, welcome. My name is Mike. I'm one of the other pastors here. And um, we are working through the book of Romans, which is so much fun as a church. We love Romans here. Um, if you don't know what Romans is, it's a, it's a letter written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Right? So it's one of the first um, Christian writings. It, it, it's um, maybe three quarters of the way through your Bible there. Um, and um, look, today, we've, we get up to chapter 6 today. I don't know if you've um, discovered chapter 6 of Romans yet. If you have, you should be excited about today. If you haven't, you should be excited about today. Romans 6 is so good. Um, today, we're really, we're really turning a corner in the book of Romans. So far, we've spent five chapters... Um, really laying some foundations, very theological foundations, very important foundations. And today we're kind of, we're definitely turning a corner. Uh, the rubber is going to start to hit the road in a whole lot more this week. Um, I am personally very excited about Romans 6 because for me, this text has been incredibly important in my journey. Um, when I was at Bible college, um, I, I studied the book of Romans in Greek. And um, this, was, this was one of my big takeaways from my six years at Bible college, however long it took me. It took me about six years. Um, I had read this passage a million times, and I don't think I understood it until I read it slowly. And it transformed my walk with the Lord. It really did. And so for me, this is, this is, I hold this one really dearly, this particular passage, and I pray today that the Lord would do the same thing to you and would bless you through this passage. Um, as we, as we study it more deeply over the next three weeks or so, I think is what, how long we're going to take to get through chapter 6. Um, and so this, this is the big question, I think, that we're answering in Romans 6. Here's the big question. All right, we just, we've, just been, we've just been talking about how we are saved by grace through faith, that we're justified by the work of Christ, not through our own works. We've been laboring that. Romans labors that. We've been laboring that. So, now that I'm a Christian... Now that I'm a justified believer who has been made righteous through Christ, now that that is who I am and I have this new identity in Christ, what do I do with my present sin? Not my past sin, which I know has been forgiven by Christ. What about my present sin, my, my very current sin? What about this morning's sin? I'm a justified believer. I'm saved by faith. And yet there's this problem that I have in that I have sin as recent as this morning. Romans 6 is going to be probably the most important chapter in the Bible to figure out what to do with that, I think. I'm probably overstating, but I do that every week, so you get used to that. Let's pray. Lord, we've already prayed a number of times this morning, but I want to pray again, Lord, that this morning your word would fully and truly and deeply land on soft hearts. Lord, we know that um, we know that you do speak to us, Lord, and sometimes we can be resistant to your word. We can be hard-hearted and have deaf ears. And Lord, we pray today that by your grace, we would have soft hearts, we'd have ready ears. And so Lord, I pray this morning over each and every one of us here today, Lord, that we would be ready to meet with you. We'd be ready to hear from you we would drop our defenses 
and open ourselves up to the true and living God who wants desperately to tell us something that's going to transform our lives. And so what I pray today for your grace and your presence and your Holy Spirit's work. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. I don't know about you, but the last 15 weeks or so in Romans has been the best. Um, before we jump into chapter 6, let me just do a quick version. I kind of started a little bit. A really quick version of where we've been over the last five chapters. I've got a little summary, um, I think. Here we go. Um, so we've got a little intro at the start of the book. Um, and then after that introduction, he jumps into three chapters on the problem of sin and the, um, the fact that humanity is... We're under this curse of sin, where sin is by nature, as in we're born into it, but we're also sin is by choice, because that's how we actually, we prove it to be true by the way we live, right? Um, chapters 1 to 3 do, does that. I end of chapter 3 then, he gets to the good news finally. I don't know if you remember that week where we finally got there and it was like, yes, Jesus, justification, righteousness through Christ. We are saved by faith, not through our works. We can't get out of this mess, but Christ delivers us from the mess. Praise the Lord. Chapter 3, this new life and justification that we have. Chapter 4. Uh, was when Paul goes, you know what, this is how it's always been. Abraham, way back at the beginning of the Bible, in the first few pages, he was saved by his faith too, not not by his works, but by his faith. And we spent two weeks looking at Abraham and and, and how this has always been the way that God has worked. And we started chapter 5 recently after our Heaven series, um, where Matt took us through the blessings of this new salvation we have, these treasures we have in Christ. Uh, And then for the last two weeks... Because of our nature, we really need it. We spent two weeks looking at how we are, by nature, in Adam. We are born into this old humanity, and Christ comes to deliver us into this new kind of humanity. And so Matt's been spending the last two weeks doing what Paul did, which is labor, beside this distinction and this difference. And so thank you, Matt, for taking us through that. This is how we finished. Romans 5 finished with these great, great words. He finishes with, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where there is more sin, God adds more of his grace. This is the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to us. Um, This word grace, it means undeserved kindness. So this, this kindness of God, as our sin increases, his kindness towards us increases as well. Um, the, the Greek word here is actually really interesting. It's, it's not just abounded, it's, Literally, superabounded. As our sin increases, grace superabounds. And I just think that's the best, because it gives us a picture of, of this almighty flood of grace that comes upon us. And as our sin increases, grace superabounds, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what we're, what we're seeing here at the end of the passage last week is that at the end of the day, when, when, we, when we boil it all down, the most that our sin can do cannot begin to compare with the most that God's grace can do. His grace superabounds to us. Our sin is finite because it comes from finite creatures, right? We are, we are finite beings. Our sin is finite. God's grace is infinite, because he is infinite. So the most that our sin can do cannot match the most that God's grace can do. We can ever, those two things are not equal forces in the world. 
This is really good news for us, isn't it? Because if God's grace superabounds, that means my, my sin is well and truly covered. Well and truly covered. And not just in general as well. Like it's, it's easier to go, yeah, okay, God has grace for sin. That's awesome. And I believe that that's true for the world. But it's, it's true for you and your sin. How often do we really like to kind of believe that we're the exception to the rule? I think we can often think, believe that, you know, God has this much grace for the world and this much grace for me. And Paul just wants to point out, no, no, God's grace superabounds. You are not the exception to the love of God. You're not the exception to the rule, to the, to the, to the grace of God. Where sin increases, God's grace superabounds. There's a problem. Because this is so extreme, this idea that we can't, that our sin can't match the grace of God, it's, it, it sounds almost, I don't want to say heretical, but it gets into that territory, I think. It feels wrong. Because this is so extreme, so radical, so over the top, that is grace, that we, that, that we can't outsin the grace of God, because that idea is, it just sounds dangerous, doesn't it? And so, the more kind of falsely religious people, they, they can't handle this, to be honest. They can't handle it. And so, Paul addresses an obvious question. This is the question. Is God, is God too gracious? Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? Is God actually too gracious? If, if this is true, if God's grace superabounds, it's a bit much, isn't it? If God just gives more grace where there is more sin, isn't that just going to encourage people to go and sin their faces off? Why not? <laughs> right? Like, isn't that the obvious thing? Why wouldn't they just cut loose and, and go all in on the sin thing if they really can receive infinite grace? That's what Paul just said. If God's grace is going to superabound and cover their sin, why wouldn't they just rack up that tab knowing that at the end of their life, God's just going to pick up that tab at the end of the day. He's going to cover it. Like when you know, your parents shout you at a fancy restaurant, you're like, well, I'm getting all the lobster then. So I'm not paying for it, right? I can go all in. There is no consequences for them. God's not going to send them to hell. They can just go sin their faces off and God's grace is going to superbound. That sounds dangerous, doesn't it? And so some people think, look, it's, it's just too much, it's too gracious, it's too much, it's too kind, not going to work, people are going to go off the deep end, they're going to keep on sinning, and what's more, they're probably going to even turn the dial up. And to be honest, through history, there have been Christian sects, Christian groups, that have actually gone ahead and done this. There's been some ancient heretics as well back in the day that, that taught this way, um, and today... There are still some Christian movements and leaders and teachers that basically teach this. It's worth saying in the Bible, the Bible teaches us pretty strongly against this. Let me just read one verse from Jude, uh, the brother of Jesus. This is what he said. He said, certain individuals, this is Jude 1 verse 4, certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you into the church. They are ungodly people, listen to this, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. They're going to pervert that grace into a license for immorality, and they're going to deny Jesus 
our only sovereign and Lord. So these people love talking about forgiveness of God. They love talking about that God saves us from our sin. They don't like talking about Jesus as our Lord, who we submit to. See that? They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So Paul's going to answer this question. What shall we say then? Verse 1. We've got to chapter 6. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is the million-dollar question. If God's grace is going to superabound when I sin more, isn't that a good thing that I sin more so that he gets more glory for rescuing me from my, from my stupid sin, right? Why can't we go all in? This is the million-dollar question. If God has l- promised he'll love me and forgive me no matter what I do, why worry about what I do? God will take care of it in the end. He's going to forgive me. Remember what we've been saying for the last however many weeks, eight weeks of Romans? God, uh, we're saved by our faith, not through our works. Well, if that's true, then who cares about my works? <laughs> who cares if they're, they're uh, immoral? And, and I'm, sure, I'm sure most of us, if we've been Christians for any length of time, have at least asked this question, even if we knew that there was something wrong. Like, the logic adds up, doesn't it? Feels like a kind of, we, we kind of like, we, we know that that's probably wrong, intuitively, by the power of the Spirit, I think, but the logic kind of makes sense. Uh, the second century church, church father, so this is like the 100s AD, way back when, Tertullian. Um, he was the guy, by the way, that gave us the word Trinity. He was the first one to coin that phrase. Pretty important guy. Um, he said that just as the Lord was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is continually being crucified between two heresies. Two, two major ways we get the gospel wrong. Two reactions that we, can, that, we're, that, that, we, that we can have when we hear this message of salvation by faith that, that are off, well and truly off, and pervert the gospel. I'm going to give you some big theology words, but they're really important, um, or at least the ideas are. The words are medium important, but the ideas are really important for us to get. Okay, two, two big theology words. I've got them up there, I think. Legalism, more rules, and antinomianism, no rules. Both of these pervert the gospel that we're learning about in Romans, and Romans is going to correct both of these things. I'll start with legalism, um, because it's not actually the focus of this text, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the second one more. Legalism looks at the gospel of free grace, that God's grace superabounds to us, and it just says, look, it's not going to work. People are going to abuse that. It's just not going to work. People are going to abuse that grace. And so we need to keep everyone in line with just some extra rules. When we build a church, we'll make sure the floor is slanty so that no one dances in the church. That's a thing, by the way, if you've never heard of that. That's a thing. Um, Why? Because it's going to make sure that never happens. We'll we'll add that rule in there, no dancing. And so we'll we'll just subtly slip some works into the gospel of free grace. We'll just slip them in there just to make sure that no one abuses the free grace thing. So the way we're going to make people holy is to add more law, basically. That's the idea. We'll add more rules. It'll make people holy that way. And we're going to insist on these rules are necessary to receive God's grace. You're not a real Christian unless you X, Y, Z, whatever those things are, right? Now, legalists are often actually misidentified, I've noticed, as if anyone that ever talks about holiness is a legalist. 
Guys, that makes Jesus a big legalist, by the way. He talks about holiness a whole lot. And Paul. No, not everyone that gets called legalist or everyone that cares about holiness is a legalist, right? We're going to make that really clear. Um, no, a legalist is someone who insists upon works as a basis of salvation, as the basis of salvation. Do you understand? This totally undermines the gospel. It totally undermines that the gospel is by free grace and not something we can achieve. And so, we've got the gospel in the middle, one thief on the one side, one heresy is legalism. We're going to slip some works in to keep people from abusing grace. What's the other problem? Antinomianism. Big word, but I'll break it down. Um, word comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. Okay, so it's anti-law. You just think about antinomian and anti-law. They're the anti-law people. These people, anyone who talks about holiness is a legalist in their eyes. There's no rules, no laws, no immorality. It's just me and Jesus. He forgives me. That's all that matters. Doesn't matter what I do. Jesus loves you. He wants you to be happy. That's, that's the antinomian crowd. They hear the gospel and they go, this is amazing. I don't have to worry about anything. Jesus forgives everything. In the future, I can live however I want to do. I don't have to worry about holiness. And this is, this is what Paul's really pushing back against, going, no, 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 no. We could also call this one, you might have heard this phrase for this one, we can also call this perversion, this thief on the cross next to Jesus, cheap grace. We've got grace on tap. We can use it however we want, right? God's given us infinite cheap grace. And so we don't need to treasure it. We don't need to value it. We can get more tomorrow. Cheap grace. You may have heard of the, the German pastor and uh, Nazi resistor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, back in the day. He said this about cheap grace. Great quote. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap Grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's cheap. It's not real. It is an abomination. The Lord keep us from such foolishness. Friends, grace is not cheap. It's free for us, yeah, only because someone else paid for it by his blood. The grace we get to receive today is ours because it has been paid in full with the blood of Christ. We must not cheat, cheat, treat that cheaply. It's costly grace. It's free for us, yes, but it is costly grace. This is why we cannot continue in sin. Our sin put our Savior on the cross. How can we return to it? That is insane. We dare not return to it without a fight. No, if we, if we truly meet Jesus... We will see our lives changed by him. We will submit ourselves to him. We will want to follow him. He will change us inside out. This will have an effect on our lives. To claim to follow Jesus and to go on doing whatever we want to do shows that we haven't actually met him yet. Someone who has met him and loves him will want to honor him. Jesus himself says, um, what's he say? He says, should I lift up this quote first? If you love me, you will obey me. 
If you love me, you will obey me. Not in order to be saved, but because you've received grace. Costly grace at the, at the cost of my life. So here's the two, pro- here's the two errors, right? Legalism, no, uh, more rules to make sure people don't step out of line. Cheap grace, antinomianism, no rules. The gospel says something else. So we're going to see next, right? What does Paul say? What does the gospel say to us? I think it's really interesting to see what Paul doesn't say at this point. He doesn't back down on radical grace. He doesn't say, look, maybe I overstated it. Maybe superbounds is too strong a word, right? Maybe the gospel does need some kind of work to keep a balance. We don't want to like, we, we don't want you to like um, get, get, get the picture that, um, you know, that God's actually that generous. You're going to have to work a little bit to get it. That would just be crazy, right, if, he, if, if God did that. No, he doesn't back down. He, he, he stands by what he said, right? Grace is extravagantly generous. Paul's not going to back down. What does he say? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We're going to see two answers to this question. Firstly, um, if you're in Christ, you have died to your sin. This is why we can't continue in it. We have died to it. Secondly, if you're in Christ, you are alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. This is why we can't continue it. What should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? This by no means in the Greek is really emphatic. So it gets translated a whole bunch of different ways in the English. Um, God forbid, absolutely not. Uh, that's unthinkable. All these kind of ways of people trying to like, you know, this is in cap locks is what I'm trying to say. If you looked up a Spanish Bible, it might say, no way, Jose. Um, something like that. I don't speak Spanish, so I, can never, I, I can't tell if that's, that's what it says or not. Um, I, thought, I thought that was funny. Um, point is, it's cap locks. He's, like, you know, he's, he's getting ready. He's, he's stretching out his fingers like, oh, guys, you're going to get it. By no means, absolutely not. No way, Jose. How can we live in sin if we've died to it? Do you not know? Have you, haven't you figured this out? Haven't you heard this yet? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried. Every time we, um, we baptize someone, we take them to Romans 6 and we talk about this is what your baptism is a representation of. We were buried with him. We've gone under the water, representing our, our joining with him in his death. We've been buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. We too might walk in newness of life. Do you see what he's pointing out here? This is, this is really profound stuff. This is, this is where I begin to... Like, I've read this before, and I'd seen this, and I, and I kind of understood what it was saying, but I didn't really get just how much this changed my world. What he's saying is that for the Christian, for the one who has put their faith in Christ, for the forgiveness of their sin, the one who has received Jesus, the Christian is supernaturally connected to Jesus. Supernaturally connected. Yeah. That's, 
Amazing. You have been baptized into his death. Think back with me, if you've been baptized here. Um, think back with me to the day you were baptized. Not just to the day, but the event. See if you can remember who, who was baptizing you, maybe who prayed for you. Remember the day you went under the water. Can you remember any of that? I remember the day, my, my memory is definitely fuzzy on, on the baptism itself, but I remember deciding I was going to be baptized when I was 15, and I was really excited, and I told, my, told one of my friends, hey, I'm getting baptized. And she was like, no way, me too, I'm getting baptized as well. Because in the same service, we both decided, and we were both excited, and we told each other, it's pretty cool. And we're like, that's awesome. I can't remember if we got baptized in the same day. I'm sure we did. What happened that day to you? We went down under the water, washed clean. But that symbol of going under the water is that you were, been, you were, you were symbolizing your, connect, your supernatural connection with Christ. That he died and you're dying as well. That's what, that's what that image is in a very real way. Entirely supernatural, but incredibly real. You're, you died when Christ died. And in a very supernatural, yet very real way, when Christ rose from the dead, you did too. Your life has been inextricably connected to his through faith. What's true for him is now true for you at the most fundamental level. What's true for him is now true for you at the most fundamental level. Do you understand? Because you're connected to him. Your life is connected to him. Friends, you have died to sin. You are no more bound by sin than Christ is. You are alive to God and dead to sin. The old man is dead. The new man is alive and connected to Christ. You're dead to it. This doesn't mean we are sinless and never sin, and we're perfect, right? That's not what this is saying. That's what some people say this means. Um, No, it says we do not continue in sin. We do not continue in sin. The word continue is the same root word that Jesus uses in, in John 15 when he says, abide in me, remain in me. Stay connected to me. Live, dwell, have your being in me, right? Same root word. You are not meant to abide in sin anymore, but abide in Christ. No, no, being dead to sin doesn't mean you never sin again. Do you know what it absolutely does mean? Sin has no power over you anymore. Because you're dead to it. Sin has lost its mastery over you. I had read that a million times in Romans 6, and I, I just didn't believe it was true until the word finally convinced me. Let's, we're going to see it in these next verses really clearly. Um, sin has lost its rule over your life. Here we go, verses 5 to 7. If we have been united to him, with him, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified in him, in order that that old body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. That's not, that's not your status anymore if you are in Christ. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you see that? It's not just that you can now fight against sin. It's that you can win 
because it has no power over you except that you give it, except the power you actively cede to it. Most Christians, I think, still live as if they are under the reign of sin ultimately. Ultimately. Like, I know God's going to forgive me, but ultimately, at the end of the day, until I get to heaven, I'm still stuck in its power. No, that's not true. That's a cop-out. If you've read Romans 6, you can't believe that. And I think, yeah, we know we're justified, we know we're forgiven, we know that God's going to forgive our sin, and we, can, we have confidence in that, we know that part. But while I'm here, you know what, I'm just not going to be able to win over sin. I just can't do it. And we live this hopeless life, this defeated life, this miserable life, really, of actually believing that we are still trapped and still underneath the power of sin when we are. Look, a, a powerless Christian makes no sense if you read Romans 6. Dead to it. Alive to God. What does verse 6 and 7 say? You are no longer enslaved to sin. For the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. And this is what I'd begun to see. That ultimately, I have been set free from the power of sin. Ultimately, not only am I freed from the penalty of sin at the end of time, but I'm presently freed from its power in my own life. You absolutely have the power to fight against sin by the Holy Spirit. You absolutely do. You absolutely do. It is a lie from Satan that you are trapped underneath it. Today you are free of its power. There's a story, come out of America, of course, probably Florida, um, of this couple who got stuck in their cupboard, locked in their cupboard for two days, uh, eventually managed to call for help, and, and the police came and they freed them. Um, they were stuck there for two days. Can you guess where the story is going? What do you think the police found when they got there? They tried the handle. Oh, it just opened. It wasn't actually locked. They just thought it was. There was no, it wasn't actually locked. Might have been a bit jammed or something, but the police just opened and they're like, oh, you guys been here for two days? You didn't try the handle? <laughs> oh my, right? So like impromptu 40-hour famine, no toilet, no water, just their own company. I imagine by the end they were ready for some time apart, not to spend a cup, uh, uh, two days in the cupboard. Now, were they trapped or were they not trapped? Yeah, but both end, right? In one sense, they weren't trapped because, of course, the door was open. They could have walked out if they wanted to. If they actually wanted to, they could have left. But in another way, in their reality, they were, weren't they? Because they lived a reality of being trapped for two days because they thought that they were. The enemy wants you to live like that as Christians. It brings him great joy to see you believe that Romans 6 is not true. And to watch you suffer and be hopeless. I mean, I think this is why people leave the faith, is because they, they're like, oh, it's just, it doesn't work. I don't think they've grasped this connection yet. You can live your life thinking you're trapped, and that'll be your reality. However, Romans 6 today is here for you to know with absolute certainty, as deep down as you can go in your, your being, that you are truly, objectively, actually, truly, really free. That, that is your ultimate reality. Free from sin forever. And this is not wishful thinking. 
This is the promise of God. This is the word of God. Not wishful thinking. You have died to sin with Christ. You are now connected to him through faith. Okay. So how come I don't feel free? All right? How come this doesn't feel true? How come, despite my best efforts, I still feel trapped? Paul's going to tell us what to do, which is very helpful. Thank you, Paul. Um, we are about to read, by the way, the first imperative in Romans. Um, let me just explain what that means. For the first time in the book of Romans, Paul's going to ask us to do something. He hasn't told us to do anything yet. He's just been excited about the gospel, right? Um, he's finally going to tell us, he's finally going to give us something to do. You might have noticed that, like, in Romans so far, it's not been, it's been practical, but it's not been, like, practical, practical. We finally get our first imperative, and this is why, right? He hasn't told us to do anything yet. Um, what are we to do, Paul? What's, what's, what's your command to us to actually live this out in our lives? Verse 8 to 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Praise the Lord. We're not just died to him. We're also alive in Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Isn't that just the best? Um, for the death he died to sin, once and for all. He's never, he's never dying again, right? That was a one-time deal that he was on the cross. He's never gone back there. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you, you Christian who have been connected inextricably with this risen Lord, you, Christian, must consider yourself, reckon yourself, account yourself to be, all the different ways this gets translated, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Practical application, think about yourself properly. Isn't that great? Think about yourself properly. Stop thinking about yourself wrongly. Think about yourself rightly. Consider yourself dead to sin. And consider yourself alive to God. So Christian, when you are struggling in sin, when you're struggling with anger, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. When you're struggling with bitterness, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. When you're struggling with lust, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. When you're struggling to die to yourself and love others as Christ has called you to do, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. When you're disappointed and despondent with your life, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. When you're feeling stained by sin and ashamed of your past, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. I think some of us today are dragging behind us a great deal of baggage. That's true of every person. It's true of me, it's true of you. But maybe today those failures, those, that baggage, that past, just weighs heavy, and it feels 
crushing. You don't feel free. Listen. Romans 6 says that that past man, that past woman, has been buried. Dead and buried with Christ. You don't dig up dead people from the grave, ever. Just general rule. Right? Leave them there. Leave that stuff behind. It's dead with Christ. Don't go digging it up. It's there for a reason. In the mind of God, it is dead, so let it be dead in your mind too. Don't go digging up the past. Leave it where it belongs, because God gives us this new beginning. Here we go, verse 4 again. We're buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just, by, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Leave the past in the past. Leave it there. Your sin is dead and buried. That old person is gone. It is not who you are. So consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself alive to God. You are not just dead to sin. You're alive to God. This is the last thing I just want to say quickly. It's time to just... The best way I've heard this, this kind of passage unpacked was by John Piper, who just repeated about 17 times in a sermon. Christian, just be who you are. It's time to be who you are. You're alive to God now. Be that person. Just be who you are. You are dead to sin and alive to God. So live out who you are in the world, in your life, in every decision you make. Consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Let that be the catch cry of your life. Um, there's these awful stories that came out of America. <laughs> Again. Um, a long time ago, right? Back when um, the institution of slavery was abolished and all, those, all the slaves were declared free men. This happened um, way back when. Um, I don't have the date on me. In, in an instant, 100,000 slaves were declared free men. We said, praise God for that moment, right? But these horrific stories of um, these men, women, children who had lived their entire lives as slaves, who were so conditioned by the suffering they'd experienced that they couldn't really... They still, it still affected them in so many different ways. They still lived trapped, even though they were freed, legally. So it was true legally, it was not true in their experience, is what I'm trying to say. They still were just struggling to live free. Objectively, they were, but subjectively, in their own worlds, they were very much not. It didn't solve the problem overnight, is what I'm trying to say. Krishna, it's time to be who you are. Free. You're free. Dead to sin and alive to God. If you're here today and, and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't experienced this kind of forgiveness, this is the promise that God gives us as Christians and as those that come to faith in him, that he does offer this super abandoning grace that does cover all of our sin, past, present, and future, but it doesn't just cover the penalty for our sin. It actually removes the power of, of sin in our lives. This is what Romans 6 promises us. This is the promise of the gospel. And so today, if you're here, just know that he died, that you might receive his grace and be made alive to him. Come into relationship with him. The answer is not no rules or more rules. The answer is actually relationship with Christ. Do you see the difference between those three things? Is it more rules, no rules? No, it's relationship with Christ. Just thinking in my own marriage, right? That 
the reason I celebrated 10 years today without either of us being unfaithful in our life, in, in our marriage, is because what? Not because there's rules telling us we can't do that. It's because we love each other, right? The relationship fueled the obedience to the do not cheat on your wife command, right? Like, isn't that obvious? The answer is not more rules or no rules. The answer is relationship with living God, and that's what being made alive to God means. Today you get to walk into that full and final forgiveness, that over-the-top, crazy, radical, super-abandoning grace that covers all of our sin forever. You walk into that today. You literally can. Christ receives all who come to him. And so today I pray that you would, you would open up your heart to receive Christ. He hears your heart cry. We didn't get to celebrate communion two weeks ago because of lockdown. We're going to celebrate it today instead. Um, so I'm going to invite the band back up, if that's all right. Um, we've got communion over here. We've got the um, juice and the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ that has been broken for us. And the juice, the blood poured out for us. And what we're, what we're doing when we're taking it is we're, we're remembering his death, yes, but we're also making a proclamation a confession, a, um, a declaration to the world that we belong to him, that he is ours. We are receiving him. It's this really kind of, it's a be- this beautiful metaphor, right? We're, we're, we're taking into ourselves his body and his blood. We're, we're, we're professing our connection with him. We're saying, I belong to him. That his death was my death, that his present life is my life today. And so if you're not a Christian in this room and, you, and you're not sure where you stand with, with God, the Bible warns us about communion to say, Don't take it if you're not sure what to do with it. So if you're here and you're interested but you're not sure what to do, I'd say just abstain and and that's totally okay. And if you have questions, we're happy to talk to you about it. Um, But if you're here from another church and you love love the Lord, I'd invite you. You, You're welcome to come participate with us. Um, I'm going to pray. And then I think during this next song, I'll invite you to come and take the elements. And if you're sitting next to someone who who can't come to to grab the elements, just just, I I ask that you would ask... um, See if you can uh, bless them by bringing the elements to them. Um, I'm going to pray. Yes, and I'll organize someone to take some to the hall as well. Haven't forgot about you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing of the clarity of Romans 6 that leaves us with no doubt whose we are, and who has power over us. Not sin, not death, but the living God who has called us to himself, united us to you. So Lord, today we want to think rightly about ourselves, Lord. We want to obey this command that says, remember who we are. Don't fall for the the trap of uh, legalism that says we need to perform better before we can receive grace. No, that's not, that's not what you call us to, Lord. Or the trap, on the other hand, that we would treat your grace lightly and so ignore the call to holiness, the call to love others, the call to lay down our lives for the good of this world. Lord, we want to, we want to follow you. Lord, we who have received grace we want to follow you into whatever you call us to, Lord. And if that means laying down our lives down, then we know that that is 
Good idea, and we're all for it, Lord. Whatever you call us to, we are all in, because we know that that is the way to life. And even when it's hard, Lord, it's what what our deepest heart wants. Lord, I pray for those who today, Lord, who who haven't yet made um, a confession of faith in their own lives, Lord, I pray for them right now that your Holy Spirit would open up their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel that calls them to come and be connected to their maker. Lord, would they come home to their Father in heaven today, I pray. Lord, would they know the sweetness of forgiveness, the sweetness of your mercy, the wonder of being made alive, spiritually connected to the Son of God. So Lord, I pray that those people right now, Lord, would would open up their hearts to receive you, Lord. Lord, make us more confident in who you have called us to be, more certain, more assured. Lord, I pray over this church, that Inaugural Baptist Church and all of its, everyone within its reach, Lord, would consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God for the glory of your name our joy as we walk into that freedom. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.